thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. You are joining us for another segment of our 2019 year in review with guests and bonus content and fun. Uh, I am your host, Kayla St. Ange, and joining me as always is my co-host, Tyler Hannon. Hello. Ah, Tyler. What a year. (laughs) What what a year. Film and also for other things. (laughs) I guess this segment is, uh, like I said previously, we have usually films that fall into certain categories. When we were putting together the segments for this year, we realized that they didn't fit as neatly into those three categories as we thought they were going to. So the segment you're currently listening to is very horror focused, but also includes some other movies chills but also thrills yes so if you're not super into horror there's still something for you in this episode if you also happen to like irishmen and her smell that (laughs) music music fictional (laughs) punk music and some other stuff that we put in here that kind of fits but not really you know what kayla that's what the show notes are for yes i'm just letting them know ahead of time the reasoning and it's because there's lots of movies and and people did not pick as much horror as usual which is you know what that's okay that's fine we can expand beyond it as long as they all know (laughs) that the reason that the lighthouse and uh ready or not are not on these lists they didn't pick them their fault their fault (laughs) yes so until then though we are going to talk about two <laughs> horror movies right now yeah. so tyler what was your favorite uh or i guess your pick for this uh this here segment so this i think it goes back and forth with this in midsummer but it's my favorite horror movie of the year and i was gonna one of those uh if no one else picks it i must pick it just to make sure it gets on the list it's jordan peele's us which one of the biggest horror movies of the year. Great big financial ex- success. Still a critical success, although I think the expectations created in be- well beyond the horror film circles led to uh, some interesting back and forth. Like a perceived sophomore slump. Right. Though by all accounts it is not. <laughs> right. And I think one of the things I really like about this movie, it is like, whereas Get Out was this really tight... Um, not simple, like a high concept, but told in a small setting with a really like tight execution. Uh, us has this really grand, like world defining breaking. Like, yeah. Well, world defining concept that it ha- is much more, I almost said convoluted, which no, that's letting them win. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, 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 it has a lot more going on. It's much more, uh, difficult to execute, I'd say. And it's a, like, it's a lot messier. Um, but I enjoy, like, this is one of my defenses of the new Black Christmas in part is this is clearly coming from someone who loves genre cinema mm-hmm. and who is willing to just really dive into a really high concept. And I don't want to say it doesn't answer certain questions, but is not worried about certain questions. And I don't think the questions it isn't worried about matter so much. People get like caught up in the technicalities about how the world must work. And while I can find that stuff interesting, I think if the movie is good enough and if the movie is focused in other areas, I do not think it detracts from the movie. If you don't know ex- like 
how exactly does this underground network work and all those things. It's kind of like a good noir movie where like the ride is the point. And I think that since he's clearly drawing so many influences from Hitchcock and like other directors of that ilk, Mm -hmm. it makes sense to me that there's a lot of ambiguity. And like, I I mean, I, I didn't like this movie as much as Get Out, but... I also gave it a four-star review on Letterboxd. Like, I loved it. So, like, I just... It's a very high bar to clear. Well, I think that there... I mean, (laughs) my Letterboxd reviews are... um, No, I mean, like, liking it as much as Get Out. Right, right, right. Okay, yes, that makes more sense. (laughs) Um, But I think that given the current cinematic climate, we're not super trained as audiences to be challenged by films or to be left not 100% satisfied by films. And I think it's almost like a lost art to remember that not every film has a satisfying conclusion. And that sometimes that's part like that. That's the point (laughs) is that it doesn't wrap up the way you want it to, or that you don't have that question answered and that there is that, um, those blanks that you obsess over later or wonder about, or think about, like it's, it's a part of mystery film. It's a part of horror film. It's, um, Something that, like, we could stand to have a little more of, I think. (laughs) Part of my argument for this movie being even better than it got credit for is that it is so good and so thrilling that you should be along for the ride enough that the the unanswered questions don't matter as much. So I should probably actually talk about the things that are so good and so thrilling about this movie. (laughs) Um, Like, the performances are an obvious one. Well, the performances are a huge one. Uh, Lupita is the obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's undeniable. People want, like, tried to, Oscar like, Oscar when? Uh, right, honestly. <laughs> like, it was, it's clearly deserving of an Oscar nomination at the very least. But the other performances are also great in this movie. Winston Duke, uh, doing as many people said, a Jordan Peele impression of sorts, uh, is just so charming and so mm-hmm. big and just, what a star. I love him so much. The kids are really good, too, uh, especially the daughter. I think compared to Lupita, she has the most impressive dual performance. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah, like that, that. I really like that family. I really like their relationship with each other. And I think they all do a pretty great job also perf- like performing in these dual ro- roles. Mm-hmm. Then you also have Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss just swinging in as, the, as their shitty white friend couple and... You know what? Elizabeth Moss, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the score uh, from Michael Abels, uh, who also did the Get Out score, is just incredible. Uh, Jordan Peele, working with the same composer, but the way he uses music in his movies is it, he integrates a score in which it is very present, uh, a very present and active part of the movie, but I would not say is ever distracting. It is always adding to it, even when it's at its most, like, busiest or most intrusive. Uh, it's just, like, I listen to that score separate from the movie all the time. It's really good. Um, and we talked about the kind con- like, I really like the execution. I really like, it has a moment that I really enjoy in movies like this, and I'm thinking, I guess this is a slight spoiler, but like for like compared to the end of the invitation, kind of how we are in the, I guess like slight spoilers for us too, I guess, but it's been out for quite a while. Um, there's a point where we are in a very small, a seemingly small story about like a home invasion with this one and then maybe these two families. And there's a moment when 
it is the movie reveals to us that this is a much bigger story involving the wider world around them and just the way your stomach drops in that moment whenever that is successfully executed in a movie i just think it's the, one of the coolest things i think it's really nifty well and that's the thing too like with the the marketing for this movie was really really smart because it was a twist that like i honestly didn't see coming that it wasn't just like their family that had doppelgangers and um, I don't know, looking at relooking at my review for this that I wrote right after we saw it in theaters, a thing that I kind of forgot about because I haven't watched it again since I wrote that I felt very present while watching it because I felt like it really keeps you in the moment. Like, mm-hmm. yes, you can run off ahead and be like, oh, I could have guessed that or I could have figured it out. But I thought that the film did a really great job of keeping you there and like making it so that you were more curious in what was happening at that exact moment of the film than trying to figure out the twist of the film, which is, I think, a masterclass in and of itself. <laughs> so, like, there's another movie we've discussed in this series that we love. Um, that might you might love even more than this. Where if you look back on it, it's like, oh, you know what? Look, like that is who I. This is how I would have guessed it would have played out from a very basic. This is the bad guy structure. But I was so in with the movie that it, I. I kind of forgot that he was the obvious bad guy throughout and this is where we arrived and yeah this is oh man uh jordan peele really good like (laughs) good director (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so i mean those are there there are a lot like many interpretations of us there are many different things we get into but this is meant to be a short segment and also I did not prepare for those. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that benefits from watching it more than anything. Right. And I think that if you're listening to this, you either have already seen it and you're interested to hear our thoughts or you may convincing. I don't know. If you haven't seen just, it, you should watch it. <laughs> oh, man. Like Jordan Peele, just like the, the suspense and the horror moments are so good. But just I keep thinking of the aesthetic stuff, like with the music, with the... The iconography throughout, whether it be like the red suits, the gold scissors, uh, just really good oh and the comedic timing and this is always oh. great um i think I, we might have mentioned this in in another segment i'm honestly not sure if the top of my head we've recorded a lot of them <laughs> but there is so apologies if this is a repeat for you but comedy and horror are literally a breath apart from each other and i think that when a director is good at one it's likely that they'll be good at the other because the timing that you need to pull off something funny or something terrifying is so close (laughs) that it just makes sense to me that this is where we're at and that jordan peele is this good at this yeah and there's just so much value to be mined from horror and it makes a lot yeah makes a lot of sense that jordan peele would be good at uh wielding or wielding melding these two things that i so good at (laughs) yeah so that's that's us
Kayla, so why don't you tell me about the horror movie that you have chosen for our segment? Uh, so Cats 2019. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Had to get in one. Um, so I unfortunately did not get to see The Lighthouse or Ready or Not yet, oh, which forgot. is a huge bummer for <sighs> me in my personal life. And we already covered... Midsummer and Happy Death Day to You, which are two of my favorite horror movies of the year. However, I did see another movie over the summer that I like that I thought was amazing, and that was Andre Overdahl's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Hear me out. <laughs> I know it got middling reviews. <laughs> it's fine. So Andre Overdahl is a director that I really like. I think that The Autopsy of Jane Doe is probably one of the coolest horror movies to come out in the past five or so years. Um, I think that he has an incredible eye for glimpses of scary things and also an incredible eye for, oh my God, he's opening her rib cage and cracking her open, like <laughs> kind of stuff. So he really knows where to go up to the line of gruesome and scary and disgusting and horrifying and he also knows where it's smart to cross that and when you have a movie like scary stories to tell in the dark which is based on a series of spooky children's novels i think that that is a particularly useful skill of his because this is kind of like to me i could see this being a rosetta stone for a young person getting into horror eventually, which is why I think it deserves a place on this list because I was kind of shocked by how actually scary it was. Like, first of all, going in, I thought it was rated PG. It is not. It's rated PG-13. So it was a lot more graphic than I thought it was going to be. And there were a lot of legitimately good jump scares, creepy scares that weren't all like the kind of standard studio horror fare of like the music is swelling and now like, (laughs) which I hate. Um, And... I think that taking these well-known stories that, I mean, like for me, like I remember reading these books and I remember being like, maybe not like scared, but creeped out. And it felt like a fun transgression to read them and plopping them into this kind of sociopolitical framework of, you know, Halloween in the 1960s dealing with racism against one of the main characters and the looming threat of the Vietnam War and like the anxieties around that and really centering the story on this group of teenagers who are contending with very real world horrors and then are also thrown into this situation where they have to try and figure out how to stop people in their town from disappearing. And it's kind of also about like learning to forgive people who maybe don't always deserve forgiveness and still having the empathy to fight for them in situations where it would be super easy to turn your back on them. And I just think that all all of the kids in this movie are great. Like I said, it has such a great atmosphere. It has a really interesting framework that I think really plays well with each of these individual stories because it would have been so easy to – to take this and turn it into like an anthology of just like goofiness or to try and do like black mirror, like segments for it. And I think that keeping it focused on its intended audience, which is like children, young adults is super important. And I think that that's where a lot of the criticism comes from is that it's too scary for kids. It's maybe not scary enough for adults, but I think that Sometimes in the horror community, we get really caught up on like 
caught up in like a certain elitism. (laughs) And I think we have to remember that like everybody needs a gateway to this genre. Like if people are, if kids are interested in it and if we want to have like a vibrant community that is interested in seeing different things that we have to allow for those kind of gateway movies instead of like (laughs) being 14 years old and watching Martyrs. I don't know. (laughs) Like, you know, like we need that kind of like gateway movie. And I, I appreciate that a lot of us who got into horror, it happened because like we saw something like totally inappropriate for us at an age we shouldn't have. Martyrs at 14? Well, I didn't see Martyrs at 14, oh, but you Jesus, know what I'm okay. saying? <laughs> but like, you know what I'm saying? Though? I like, thought that was like, so specific. I thought it was like from your experience for a second. I was like, Kayla. No, my, um, my Rosetta Stone for horror is uh, my grandma being really <clears> into <throat> Stephen King. And also I saw signs when I was nine and it really freaked me out, which is not true. No. Mine is a combination. We'll see in terms of high and low. Mine is a combination of Scream. The Grudge remake and live action Scooby Doo. I love it, Sarah and that's Michelle the thing. Geller. And that's the thing is like we need to remember that there is like room under the horror umbrella for a lot of these different things. And we talk about this a lot. Where like to be horror it doesn't have to literally scare your pants off. It can be moody and whatever. And I think to be horror, it can also be kind of less scary and maybe bring somebody into the rest of the genre. Because think about it. If a 14-year-old watches scary stories to tell in the dark and they're like, this is so interesting. And maybe in a couple of years, hopefully not like right away, (laughs) they find the autopsy of Jane Doe and they're like, oh my God, this is the same director who made that film that I liked when I was younger. Or then they get into like, I don't know, like pie whacket territory, which I think is also like really, really scary, but is still really focused on teenagers. I think that when you create art for an intended audience and you're including them in your wider genre, it leads to like a better community, a more diverse genre. Um, and just like flat, like fresh blood, like not to be gross, like, but like, yes. yeah, like we are the vampires <laughs> waiting to prey on these children, but like, I want their ideas. I want them to be interested in it. And I don't want it to always be this, like, Oh, you liked that. Or mm, is that really scary? Or is this really, you know, like I want there to be that thing. And so I think that this movie is a really good place for that. And it also has literally the greatest cover of all time, which is Lana Del Rey doing Season of the Witch, which I've listened to 4 billion times since it was released. (laughs) And yeah, I don't know. So if you're on the fence about it or if you saw it and maybe were underwhelmed, like I would say to try and keep in mind that you are maybe not the intended audience and that's okay. And yeah, so that's uh, my horror pick for this segment here. You know, I was going to say, Piwak and the Autopsy of Jane Doe, that wouldn't make a great double feature. That's we literally double featured yep, yep. <laughs> I actually then, I saw when I saw Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I did go home and then rewatch the Autopsy of Jane Doe. And, like, some of the parallels with the body horror are uncanny. Oh, like, I wouldn't oh, say, oh, I wouldn't say, oh. because, like, again, it is a PG-13 movie versus, like, I think technically an unrated movie. But... He has a very distinct style, and it shows through. And I'm really excited to see what else he does, like, with the rest of his career. Yeah. But yeah, so that's it from us for this segment. Uh, Like I said, this is going to be kind of horror-focused, but with some other stuff thrown in. So I hope you enjoy. You're going to hear from some of our favorite guests and friends which i guess is true of every episode because you're all our favorites but and a new guest who i was very excited yes joining was joining us yes so without further ado we'll let you dive into that when i look over my shoulder what do you think i see some other cat look 
now is uh, associate editor for Vulture and co-host of the Disaster Girls podcast, Jordan Cruciola. Hi, everybody. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And I look for any excuse to talk about the movie I'm about to dig in w- into with you guys. I was going to say, you immediately picked this movie, um, I think before even agreeing to do the podcast. Like, this would be the movie. <laughs> this, this would be it. Uh, so yeah. can you tell us what that movie is and why you picked it? That movie, my movie of 2019, and I knew it from the moment I saw it, which was in at the end of or the beginning of May last year, and it held steady clear through to the end, was The Perfection, uh, which premiered at Fantastic Fest in, I believe, 2018, was snapped up by Netflix. And so that is where you can watch it. I also enjoyed watching this movie. I was absolutely shocked that somebody <laughs> picked it as like the movie that they wanted to talk about. So I am so interested <laughs> to like hear. So like, what was it, I guess, that made this the movie for you this year? I only knew the scantest bit about it. And that was very intentional going into it. And I had had multiple friends separate from one another, but multiple friends at Fantastic Fest when it played who messaged me individually to tell me, don't read a thing about this movie but this is so aggressively your shit i i cannot wait for you to see the perfection and i was like great that's all i need to know allison williams logan browning dueling cellists uh psychosexual something or other okay great like sight unseen probably my favorite movie of the year and then i went to an advanced press screening of it at the Netflix offices. And my jaw was just open the entire time with like my, like I was smizing with an open mouth and just delighted at the wonder and the horror and the psychotic sickness of it. And then it ended. And I, with a stranger right next to me in this Netflix screening room, just started slow clapping for the benefit of only myself (laughs) and was like let's do it again let's play it again like sam get in here we need it (laughs) right now fire up the projector we're going again (laughs) i this movie is like i mean just to just to get out of the way if you if listeners have not seen this movie it's batshit crazy (laughs) there is no part of it that will make like there there is no like I don't, I'm trying to even think of the right words. Every twist is so unexpected. There are three twists that are at like a tectonic plate rearranging level in terms of the narrative of this movie. 
It's it's bizarre. And, and it's like, it's a movie, I think when I put it on my letterbox, I was like, this is a mess, but it's like the most interesting and fun mess I've ever seen. And I just like, I think Allison Williams just has this quality about her. Oh. And I, I first yeah. of all, she's stunning to to look at. I love her. She's beautiful. And like, just something about the, the contrast of her being like so beautiful and so very much America's perfect brunette sweetheart girl right. with just like the absolute filth that <laughs> happens in this movie is insane. And, and and it's also, there are so many ways that it could go because if I hadn't known that it was a horror movie going into it, like right. I, I right. kind of, w- I want almost like the version of the movie that like the first 20 minutes where it's kind of this romance. I want the, ver- I want that thread of it. This is my favorite love story of 2019. Like yeah. the romance of the like if like I I want to I want like a, a choose your own adventure style of this movie where it's like okay you still like at this point they just had sex which way would you like to proceed to bus or to home or to other place <laughs> and then in the bus into the bash of crazy bus stuff it's like okay do you want to end with bus and maybe go this way or do you want to continue <laughs> like you know I feel like it's really ripe for that kind of nice or would you like her to hug Logan like pick A or B it's just like I I don't know I I didn't expect a single part of it and that's even I, I can't say that about any other movie that I saw this year like one thing I had forgotten is that it literally like rewinds to like show you what happened mm-hmm. multiple times and I feel like that is not something a lot of movies could get away with no. uh, but it's almost necessary I, I think an important an important I guess I'll just like I'll give a brief I'll give a brief the most scant summary of it, which is that Allison Williams, we open the story with her at I believe 13 years old and she is a, a prodigal cellist, a, 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 a cello prodigy and she has to leave the conservatory where she studies to go care for her mother who is dying. Cut to 10 years later when the story really opens up in earnest and we see the adult version of Charlotte, which is Allison's character, now played by Allison, and she emerges from from caring for her mother who has finally passed and she looks up her old cello instructor, this man named Anton, and she goes to meet him at a competition that he's hosting in Shanghai to find sort of like the next prodigy that he will take into his school and he will, he will, you know, bring to great cello supremacy. And when she gets to this event, she meets his sort of the person who took her chair basically after she left the conservatory, which is Logan Browning's character and Lizzie. And when they see one another, there is an immediate attraction between the two of them and then their lives intersect in ways that Charlotte knows and Lizzie is not yet aware of that are going to lead to some of the most horrendous events that a person could imagine or not even be capable of imagining in their entire lives. That is a really good description of it. Yes. (laughs) I, I'm just, I'm trying to think like, uh, like, I mean, I don't want to spoil it too hard because I do think it's a movie that benefits, although this is a very spoilery podcast. (laughs) So I guess uh... fair warning to all listeners. I just like every part of this movie is so insane that I'm like, she chops off her fucking arm. Like they do. Like it just, every, it just, it goes there every single time when you, are like, okay, surely that was the craziest thing that was going to happen. And it just like, 
continues to escalate. Yeah. You get to threaten stump fucking by the end, and it's like, oh my god, I thought we would already hit the event horizon, but we haven't yet. You're like, at this point, you're like, fine, do it. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Go for it, please. It's like a much messier and like terrifying version of the handmaiden. Where like they're they're kind of trying to accomplish the same goal uh, as like two women in love. Version of the handmaiden, like the American. 42nd Street, Old Times Square, grindhouse version of The Handmaiden. It's it's The Handmaiden made in America with a very used heroin needle stuck in your arm. Like, that, <laughs> that is what it is. Yes. I was going to say, this is like, so this is coming off of, I, I also read the, um, the ba- explainer of the ending where you interviewed uh, yeah. the director and the two actresses, which was like very informative and got into like, it got into a lot of like why they did the ending. But one of the mm-hmm. things I thought was very telling was like the first couple paragraphs where Kayla, I meant to send this to you. My bad. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll find out together now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like it, like early on, it talks about, um, hit the director's like influences and how it came from just like taking in a lot of genre movies, a lot of like, you know, South Korean revenge movies. And that's a thing that kind of runs through a lot of the movies. I love this year. We just, um, I guess like referencing in our segment, we just talked about knives out. And one of the things we liked about knives out is it's clearly this person who is very well versed in the genre and very, it just like clearly loves it so much. And this was another movie that uh, among many that this year that really, I think shines with that that this person like this person has watched a lot of really fucked up movies and really loves them and is like channeling them and creating this well, and Richard grew up, Richard's a New Yorker. He grew up in New York. So when I, I referenced the the New York City, like Times Square, like red light district theaters, that's what he grew up going to. And, and those movies really sunk into him. And I had such a great time interviewing him for this movie. We, we were just sitting and talking a mile a minute. He, Richard loves dirty, sexy cinema. He loves like camp and exploitation, but he also like, he filmed many episodes of Girls. That's how he came to know Allison Williams. He's the longtime partner of Jenny Connor. Like he has these very sort of feminist, feminine um, muses in his life all around him. And he, you see, I think in this movie, one of the things I love about it so much is is I love exploitation cinema as well. And an important thing to know about me in all of this is that rape revenge films are probably my my favorite subset of films um, among among the horror genre, it's it's always a weird thing to say, to be like, I enjoy rape revenge the most, but I, I like a vengeance narrative. I like a female-driven vengeance narrative. I love violent movies and I love retribution in film. And so when you pair that outcome uh, along with the the worst sort of like possible catalyzing incident for a person to seek vengeance on another individual, I like seeing women get theirs in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the like presently one of the things i like most about rape revenge cinema is that the wave of it that we're seeing now with what i kind of consider this neo exploitation movement that's happening with films like mfa um i know jennifer kent is very reluctant to f- categorize her film the nightingale as rape and revenge but it's certainly a very big part of it and movies like cold hell 
and uh, literally revenge from director Coralie Farge, we're really actually seeing this retraining of the gays in rape revenge films to put the emphasis so much more squarely on the feminine perspective and on empowerment over exploitation, though exploitation is inherently a part of the process. And that is really exciting to me. And and I love horror. It is the it is the most in your face, obviously, of, of all of our genres. It is it is a sledgehammer or it is a scalpel, but either way, you're gonna see blood. And I like things that aren't subtle. And you can't get much more like over the top, beat you over the head with something than a rape revenge film. And I think if we see such progress in these films that are just the epitome of problematic representations of women on screen, making such huge steps forward in doing right by their heroines and giving their heroines these beautiful, stylized, um, nuanced narratives to, to really rise to power in, that to me is so indicative of the potential of cinema generally to become better than it is. Because if rape revenge films can become exemplary narratives for women to display their bodies and their power then we can truly accomplish this anywhere. And if we're not, then it's just excuses. Like the perfection was one of the most, I thought like well handled ways of presenting like sexual trauma and female relationships on screen last year. And it is like you said, the utter filth of what is going on in this movie. And yet within that, the beauty and the elegance, like we can have it all. We actually can. <laughs> you just have to be deliberate and you have to, to make the right smart choices to make that happen. Yeah. And I think as we get into this like era of this prestige or whatever you want to call it horror that we've been getting, there's been a really great like retraining of perspective. And I think that I'm really glad that you brought that point up because that's not a way that I had thought of it before. And like as a person who is super into horror movies, like that is a really great way to look at it and to look at like the potential that filmmakers have. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, and I think like, and, and I, you know, with those movies like MFA, Revenge, uh, the Nightingale, go back to American Mary, which I think is sort of a catalyzing force in this kind of movement. Those are all directed by women. And that is great. We need that. But sustainable, meaningful change isn't going to happen unless men get on the get on the agenda as well. And so to have Richard handle this so well and be in such close communication with Logan and Allison in how this story needed to be told correctly is so important because it doesn't happen. Change doesn't happen without allies. Like men are still the hegemony. The patriarchy is still very much a concern regardless of, of how much we, we say time's up. And so for Richard to like, I think one of the most essential things to know about this movie, because I mean, a, topically, one of the best parts about it is that within the first 20 minutes, there's a supercut scene of Allison and Logan having like a dueling cellos performance in a gorgeous concert hall wearing designer gowns, intercut with them dancing in a club and then having sex, which is like, name, name a more iconic scene in 2019. Oh, wait. The fact that that happened and you can watch it and appreciate it and enjoy the art of it and the craft of it and the sexiness of it. And no, I would like everyone to know that Logan and Allison had final say over the edit of that scene. And when they filmed it, it was a closed set. It was a truly closed set. It was Richard, Logan, Allison, and the cinematographer, Vanya Cernul, who was also the DP actually on Crazy Rich Asians. And so you have actually these women in this very delicate situation being told that they have the power to decide what this scene is going to look like with their exposed bodies. One, you know, when picture lock comes around 
and and Richard established too that like you know he wanted to in that in that scene while they were filming it make them feel totally safe but also know that like he wanted to like speak his mind when that scene was happening he didn't necessarily he wasn't going to be disrespectful but he he wanted to wanted to be indelicate like he wanted to you know tell them to make it sexy or make it hotter mm-hmm. without being like disrespectful but like he put a lot of the power in their hands to shape the outcome of that scene while also establishing enough trust for him to be a clear and decisive director in the moment. So they could all bring out the best in one another to put it together. And I think if you're going to have a movie that has so many violations in it of sort of taste and, and, and bodies, then that is the standard you have to hold yourself to in making it. And, and Logan told me in the interview that I got to have with her that like, that was, she felt so empowered coming out of that experience to advocate for herself in sets going forward, being like, no, I know what closed set means because I've had a closed mm-hmm. set during a sex scene and you don't actually get to talk me around having that anymore. So it kind of like, it's like setting a quote for an actor. You make a certain amount of money on one project, you can then demand that money or more on the next one. And it's sort of like setting a quote for your own empowerment and your own integrity. Like, no, I have reached this level of self-determination and you do not get to take me backwards in the next thing that I do. And that is so incredibly valuable. Yeah. And it's awesome to hear all of that. I'm really like that. That also adds a lot of really great context to a lot of what happens there, especially because when you, when you read stories about male actors and their methods and their like, honestly, like terrible behavior on sets because they like have to get the character or they have to do this or that when it comes down to like women just wanting to be respected in front of the camera, like it's, yeah, it's great to like get to like that point and to have directors like actively advocating for that. Well, and it's so like in, in the like from just a a, t- a surface level of enjoying the bright colors and the beautiful mise en scène and the costumes and just the the visual deliciousness of this movie. I love enjoying it from that very top level but then to know more details about how it came together to hear about the process of how it was made and know that it doesn't have to come with an asterisk or a caveat where I apologize for liking this movie that's problematic but like I like these trashy salacious things and that's just something I'm always going to enjoy but to know that it actually comes with a responsible production and a cooperative filming environment like oh what a gift what a gift to just be able to embrace trash and sex and bodies and horror and gore and be like and you know what they they it was ethical production holy hell we can have all the things like when you when you have like horror bros and assholes talking about how something can't be horror unless it's rated r or things are things are too pc now and that's ruining like the integrity of cinema it's like the perfection was fucking made and i talked to the two women at the front of it these this black and white woman who made this movie together saying that they felt respected and they felt honored and they felt included in the collaborative process to make one of the least PC things that came out last year. Get the hell out of here with your gatekeeping bullshit. Like, no, the perfection exists. You don't get to tell me that we've lost our edge. Agreed. And that's like one of our favorite topics on this entire podcast too, is to talk about horror and how it can be defined and how it shouldn't be gatekept and whatnot. So thank you for unintentionally bringing us to the thesis of the entire Let the Right Films in Existence (laughs) organically. I love it. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I guess, do you have any like, uh, to kind of like wrap up um, any like final thoughts or any other like things you really wanted to touch on that are important about this film to you? I do. I do have a couple things. Um, just 
from a from an aesthetic level, this movie has a handful of my absolute favorite single shots yes. of the entire year. There's of course that image that beatific image of Allison Williams sitting in front of like the gold halo behind her in a designer red silk dress where she's about to play the cello for her life. And the image of that just sort of like angelic presence with the perversion of the moment in a in a set that they call the chapel is so oh my god it's stunning and then there's that my my absolute favorite shot of anything the entire year you saw it in the trailer and then i when i saw it in the trailer i was like oh my god my mind is blown like this is i cannot like this is how i know this is my movie and then i saw it actually play out in the scene and it was even better and it's that it's that shot when you see Allison in that same setup, but it starts from the first time you see her in that scene when she's been bound and she is about ready to be told, like, if you do not play this this cello piece perfectly, like, horrors that certain horrors await you on the other side of this. The scene starts shooting her from below and you see her ankles in gold chains. She's wearing Jimmy Choo heels and there's this red gown draping in front of her. And that is, that's the fucking image right there. That is, that is the class with the trash. That is the beauty with the exploitation. That is the patriarchy chaining this woman to the ground, but in golden shackles. Like it is absolutely perfect and i like i want a, i want a mural of that painted in my home from just the surface level of how gorgeous it is to the deeper level of everything that it represents is so perfect and i do want to say that um an interesting point too that I, I spoke to logan and and richard and allison about was that the role was not um the role was of lizzie was not written for any one person in particular the role of charlotte was meant to be for allison but um when they cast logan they were, they became aware suddenly that, and, and Allison was actually the one to bring it to Logan to be like, all right, you are a black actress. I am a white actress. There is a lot of sexually compromising material in this movie. This suddenly changes how we relate to one another and the politics of this film. So let's find a respectful place to come together. So like, I, I want to see me an open discourse about, about how this plays out. And so the sexual politics of having a white woman and a black woman on screen together who are both being oppressed by a white man, like that oppression plays out so differently at a broader cultural level. And that was something that they all three were in conversation about and had like very productive, like sometimes conflicting, but healthy conversations about how to bring that to the screen most effectively and most respectfully in the process of making the film. So they weren't just glossing over the fact that, that these two women do not have the same experience in the world when you have like, Miss USA archetypal white princess Allison Williams, who is very aware of the image that she projects, and it's why she ran so fast and fully into her role in Get Out as like this embodiment of toxic, terrifying whiteness. She knows what she represents, and so to have her go into this role and and, and in her own words, wanting that character that she played as Rose in Get Out to be in conversation, as she put it in this role that she played in the perfection and to subvert people's expectations of her and also play into them to destabilize them while having Logan come in and just being such a fucking star and really having the most like reckless abandon possible coming to this part that put her in all manner of compromising positions. It's just from top to bottom. I just love this movie. It's my favorite movie of 2019. It's amazing. I love having all this context too, because like with horror, there definitely are often a lot of those caveats when you are 
when you really love a movie and you have to make excuses for it. And yeah. I, I feel like you could not have, I probably would not have known at any point until this conversation that the perfection was probably the most responsibly shot movie of the year. <laughs> so <laughs> I love to know that. And thank you so much for like bringing all of that great conversation and perspective to the podcast. I was so honored to be able to speak with Richard and Logan and Allison about it. And they, they were so enthusiastic and forthcoming in the conversations that I had with them about it. Um, it was so wonderful to spend a day speaking with these people about this really challenging mo movie in certain ways that they just believed in so much and were so enthusiastic about and happy to talk about. It was wonderful to have that radiating off of each of the people involved when you watch something and be like, how the fuck did they do this? Well, the answer is like, they're all pretty happy about it. And they all were, they all, all three of them were so and excited and proud to discuss it it made me so much happier to love it the way that I do always amazing <laughs> like it is an amazing feeling I love it <laughs> but yeah um so again thank you so much for joining us um do you have any specific like your twitter or anything that you'd like to plug and we'll put it in the show notes where people can find your work yeah where can they find you yeah, well uh as per the introduction I work at Vulture where I uh, we're all very much generalists at Vulture, but my predominant area of coverage is horror. This is what I am writing about and talking about all the time, and I love it so. So, uh, yeah, do do come check out the horror coverage at, at Vulture and, and everything else we do. And I am on Twitter at Jorcru, J-O-R-C-R-U. And I will say, I will forever push two pieces that I've done that I feel like are germane to this conversation, which is... I last year did a, oh my gosh, maybe that was two years ago now, did a timeline of a 55 film history of queer presence in horror that I would highly recommend people look at if they want to get a sort of 30,000 foot view at the evolution of queerness in the genre over literally a century of film. And then uh, did an incredible package with a, a bunch of really great writers uh, as well, called the 100 Scares that Shaped Horror, which, uh, as opposed to doing like the 100 Best Horror Movies, it is a it is a timeline chronologically of the 100 scenes that were most formative in building the language of horror that we use today to communicate through the genre. And those are two references that I'm really really proud of, and I do hope that people will check out. Awesome. We'll link to all of that in the show notes and right. say thank you for the millionth time. <laughs> and hopefully we'll talk to you in the new year. This has been super fun. Thank you so much, guys, for letting me join in.
Joining us now is author and academic Jess Peacock. Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. Can you tell us what the 2019 movie you picked was and why you put, chose that movie? Well, the movie that I that I chose, and it was actually my my favorite movie of the year, and actually was in my top ten for the decade as well, was uh, Mike Flanagan's adaptation of Stephen King's uh, Doctor Sleep. And the, I mean, the reason are it's manyfold. Um, I mean, I, I'm a huge Mike Flanagan fan. First off, I I just really love his narrative instincts and his visual style. I thought uh, Oculus was also one of the best horror films of the decade. I just thought it was an amazing piece of work. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. The Haunting of Hill House was a tremendous accomplishment. Um, I thought it was everything horror should be. It was emotional. It was frightening. It was even hopeful. And I think even you know both those projects share a lot of connective tissue uh, with Dr. Sleep. The idea of of generational family trauma, um, facing the ghosts of our past to defeat the monsters of our present. You know, between that and Flanagan's own admitted Stephen King fandom, uh, he seemed to be you know uniquely qualified, I think, to uh, adapt Doctor Sleep. But you know, but he had you know he had the, he had a very a huge and complicated. Uh, tasks to accomplish because, you know, so you have the shining novel and movie and we all know Stephen King hated Kubrick's adaptation. And, and I, and I get why he did, but it is a classic film with undeniable, you know, cultural iconography and imagery. Uh, and of course we're a much, we're much more of a cinematic culture than we are a literary culture. Right. So, mm-hmm. You know, because until a comic or a novel is adapted for Netflix, it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're seeing that with The Witcher right now. You know, like all of a sudden everyone's a Witcher fan. But, you know, how many of those people actually, you know, read the material? So you have, you know, you have Kubrick's adaptation and that's what that's what everyone knows. And, and I love and I love The Shining. I love Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. And I also love the novel. But it is a it is a very cynical and cold retelling of of King's novel. You know, in the novel, Jack Torrance is, you know, he's struggling. He's fighting his descent, you know, into madness. Um, and But in the novel, he actually ensures Danny and Wendy's escape, and then he blows up the, the hotel behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the film, Jack is, you know, Jack is just fucking crazy from the get-go. You know, there's no descent into madness. The minute you see him, it's like, oh, he's mad. You know, he's <laughs> he's gone. And of course, at the end of the film, the, the hotel is standing at the end. So then, you know, Stephen King writes Dr. Sleep. And of course, it is a direct sequel to his original novel. So the overlook is gone and there isn't necessarily the nostalgic iconography to hearken back to, which is a problem when you talk about adapting the film version of Dr. Sleep, because cinematically you're going to want to make a sequel to Kubrick's masterpiece, because that's what most people know and want to see. So these are the masters uh, Flanagan needed to serve. And I think he did it uh, masterfully. I mean, not only did he manage to create a, a visual sequel to Kubrick's movie, but he managed to 
you know, effectively adapt the spirit of the novel, of the Dr. Sleep novel, while also incorporating elements from King's Shining novel that, you know, Kubrick did not use, that he jettisoned. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, in Flanagan's Dr. Sleep, when Danny is possessed by the Overlook, and, you know, he he breaks through that, that trance long enough to tell Abra to run, that's lifted straight from the original The Shining novel when Jack does the same uh, for Danny, uh, even using the same words. And of course, the destruction of the Overlook is taken directly from the novel as well. And and Danny in Doctor Sleep is once again standing in for his for his father. Uh, so when you factor in all of these elements, you know Flanagan's achievement is to to me is just absolutely masterful and an epic. I would definitely agree. My my we've covered The Shining on the podcast a couple of years ago, and and as a Stephen King fan, my my long standing complaint with The Shining, the film, is that it is, in my opinion, a poor adaptation of the source material. Yes, and I. I don't know, just like the, the balls to make a sequel to The Shining when it's one of like the most uh, famous movies of all time. But yeah. I think what is so great about Mike Flanagan, I, I truly think he's one of our, our finest, you know, current horror directors. But I think that between this and between his adaptation of Gerald's Game, I think that there is an understanding between him and King, or at least mm-hmm. maybe not between the two of them as people, but he understands the material. There are elements of it that I think he's able to elevate off the page. Like for instance, the ending of Gerald's game, which in my opinion Mm -hmm. on the page, not super great, but Mm -hmm. in the film, like it made sense. It was something that I, I felt was very poignant. And so I think that he understands what is good about Stephen King, which is that in the midst of horror and all of this other creepy crawly, whatever is that Stephen King is really good at writing people Mm-hmm. And his character work is what really shines in every single one of his novels, whether it's like his most acclaimed or the the bottom of the barrel kind of right. maximum overdrive stuff. And Flanagan's not afraid to lean into what other people would think is too corny to try mm-hmm. to adapt. Mm-hmm. And I think that his reverence for that really shows in this and in kind of taking like taking on, as you said, the task of serving these two masters of having to be like, yes, we need to add these things in. But also I want to make sure that we get this kind of empathetic and like, I guess, caring ending on the screen, because that is a huge part of the novel. And it's a huge part of what makes all of that work for me personally. Absolutely. I mean, the, the movie is an antidote to Kubrick's cynicism, you know, where The Shining was about madness and addiction and fear and 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 the book is as well but the the shining novel is also tempered with uh, the the fatherly struggle right it's not it's not one of just pure madness and addiction and fear or cynicism it's it's about a it's about a man struggling mm-hmm. through that and trying not to be where kubrick is just cynical from from the get go um and so doctor sleep is is sort of the antidote to that it's full it, it is full of hope and courage and and recovery you know and while ewan mcgregor is a is a is a big piece of that in his performance as danny it's it's in the book as well and um uh kylie uh curran uh as abra is you know she you know pardon the pun you know she really shines in bringing that sense of hope and courage uh into 
the narrative. She just embodies hope uh, throughout the film. And I think what you're talking about with Flanagan, you know, I think one of the things that he does well with, at least with his two outings with King's material is that, and I think Toby Hooper did this well with Salem's Lot as well, is that, you know, there's, yes, like with Dr. Sleep, there's a lot that was radically changed from the novel, but the spirit of the novel is in the movie. Um, same thing with Toby Hooper and Salem's Lot. You know, the Toby Hooper's version of Salem's Lot gets a lot of criticism because they changed Barlow, right? They, you know, they changed him from this noble person into, or nobleman into this Count Orlockish kind of vampire. But the spirit of Salem's Lot is is embedded in that in that miniseries, and I, I think Flanagan knows how to get to the spirit of of what King is saying. And I think that's how he convinced King to do because King, you know, if you listen to any podcast with Flanagan, he talks about that initially King did not like his take. He did not want to go back to the overlook. He did not want the overlook standing in this movie. Uh, but Flanagan walked him through it and showed him how he could bring elements of the original shining novel that Kubrick did not engage with and bring it into this telling. And he won King over through tapping into that spirit. I think that's something that we've talked about almost every time we've brought up uh, a Stephen King adaptation. It's one of the things that makes, I think uh, it chapter one definitely had a lot of that for, Mm. for some of its faults the number one thing that stood out to me was like the way that the kids acted and how they spoke with each other in that first movie. And I I just, for me, like I've been a Stephen King fan since I was 11 or 12. And Mm. part of that fandom stems from, you know, like wanting to be scared and being interested in that feeling, but also in connecting with these characters. And I think that in this movie, in Dr. Sleep particularly, I wish almost that like that had existed when I was that age, because it would have been so cool for me as like a 12 year old girl to see that kind of uh, like a character like Abra in a Stephen King novel. And I think it kind of exists with like the girl who loved Tom Gordon and whatnot. But I, I really love that bent of it where it's just like trying to, pass on knowledge to younger generations and set them up for success and kind of, you know, reset the cycle of your own trauma and issues <laughs> as best you can. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the, uh, I, I think, overlooked elements of of the film, and this really, this isn't really in the book, um, is, is the power of popular culture uh, comp- uh, now as compared to perhaps the late seventies, early eighties, when, um, when the shining was, was, uh, was, um, you know, w- when the shining was released, you know, one of the most powerful aspects of the film for me is the difference between Abra's response to the evil around her versus Danny's response from the original mm-hmm. film, you know, where he is scarred and traumatized. Abra stands tall um, you know, take the, you know, the, the woman in room 237, for example, when, when Danny meets her, you know, he retreats into himself. He's sucking his thumb. He's practically, you know, comatose. When Abra encounters her, she stares her down and says, try it. You know, Danny didn't understand the shine, but Abra saw it as magic or as a superpower. And I think an explanation for that 
lies in the power of, of popular culture. And, you know, in Abra's room are posters and toys from the anime Ruby. Um, and Flanagan in one shot actually focuses on, on, a, on a shot of a toy in Abra's room. And the toy is um, um, uh, Emerald Sustrai from that anime. And she's a young girl of color who has the power to alter, you know, the thoughts or reality inside someone's head. And Abra even takes on that look of Emerald when she traps uh, Rose the Hat inside, you know, her own mind. So all this for me is like an observation of the power of popular culture in our lives and how stories and narratives provide meaning to us. Danny basically had Looney Tunes to guide him when he was a little yeah. kid, right? You know, pop, pop, the pop culture um, scene was not then what it, you know what it is today uh, abra has an array of heroes and stories to inspire her to prepare her for battles you know in the real world i mean she's basically an x-man mm-hmm. right so i don't think that was lost on on flanagan uh, because you know they made a point of of uh, not only abra sort of taking on the traits of you know, a, a pop culture character that she was obviously in love with, but it was reflected in how she responded to the horror. She she stood up to it. She faced it down. And so, again, I think, you know, the the the, the narrative of Dr. Sleep is that antidote to the cynicism and um, hopelessness of The Shining. Yeah. And unlike technical notes on the film when you mention Rose I just what there are so many good performances in this film like Abra mm-hmm. and Rose mm-hmm. and Danny and it's just like even in parts where it feel like where I feel like in the hands of a lesser actor or maybe a lesser screenwriter it would be starting to drag a little bit I just I was mm-hmm. so transfixed through the whole movie just on like I could watch Rebecca Ferguson chew scenery in that hat for five hours. Like, it's just, I don't know. It it was, it was such an incredible experience. I was very sad that I didn't get to watch it in theaters after watching it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, uh, how, how easily that role could have turned into almost uh, like a cartoonish Mm -hmm. villain. Right. Um, And she, she brought a sense of, I mean, obviously menace, uh, power, but, you know, there was also, you know, her, the, the true knot was her family. She brought a, she brought a pathos and an empathy, like when her people are being killed, um, you know, she is devastated by this and, you know, there's a, there's a sympathy to her performance, I think as, as well, which is often, you know, something that, um, I think some of the better vampire performances, because, you know, they're, they're basically vampires, you know, the, the fact that in order to survive, these people need to feed, right. And can, can they be blamed for doing that? So she sort of brings this, um, uh, this empathy to the role that I thought was just mm-hmm. fabulous and just, you know, clear, clear throughout uh, there, even the, the smallest of roles are, are just filled with excellent performances. It, it, the movie to me is a true classic. Yeah. And I, I also really loved the portrayal of it as like two diverging paths that Abra could take. Like she could Mm. be like the quote, good guy, like Danny after getting a shit together and like do Mm. all this stuff. Or like um, Rosie points out like, Oh, you like, you could be me. Like you remind me of me. And it's, it's very much like a hero's journey kind of arc where it's like the light side or the dark side, which do you choose (laughs) kind of deal. And it's, it's interesting to see that play out. 
Absolutely. And also, I think one of the things that, that Flanagan was was wise to do was the iconography of the Overlook. Um, you know, we, we, we get it a bit at the beginning. You know, he spends time in the hotel at the end, but he didn't make the mistake of making Dr. Sleep the shining part two. Right. It told Abra's story. It told Rose the Hat's story. It told Danny's story as an adult and and his um, dealing with the trauma of what he went through as a child and, and recovering from that. It could have in the wrong hands. It could have so easily just been the shining part, too. And we go back to the hotel and we tell the story again and we go through all that. We do get a bit of that at the end. Um, and I think to some extent that's fan service. But it was done in a way that it didn't overshadow that 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 journey that you were talking about. It didn't overshadow Abra. So I, again, I think just that was evidence of of a sure hand, uh, the evidence of someone who understood the spirit of the novel, and that King is King is not just about horror. King is about character. King is about. Um, uh, delving into what makes us human. Yes, 100% agree. <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, do you have any like final thoughts that you want to share before we wrap up? Um, I mean, uh, not really. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, like I said, you know, it's a classic film. I, I, one of the things that I love about the the movie, I think, is all the, you know, the the array of of Easter eggs, you know, that are in the film as well. You know, just for Stephen King nerds, I, you know, it's it's just another sign of of his fandom and that, uh, you know, he he does want to tell a good story. But at the same time, he does want the fans to, uh, you know, like people who are really into Stephen King. Um, the, you know, the multiverse of, of King's storytelling to enjoy it as well. I mean, you've got, I mean, there was Dark Tower references, cause a wheel and, you know, Tet Transport was on the side of the bus. Um, but also you just all the fun shining references. The doctor's office was the same office as, um, uh, you know, the office at the, at the beginning of The Shining. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, and, and I also, I think it's, uh, something to point out too, is I really like Flanagan's decision to not use digital recreations of, of, you know, the actors in their youth. I like the fact that he cast people that could embody the spirit of those characters. Mm-hmm. I think if he went a digital route, it would have just been too distracting and would have really brought the film down a, a notch, but mm-hmm. You know, other those little details, um, I, you know, I, I could and I will I, I will be watching this movie again a few times this week because some people are coming over to do that. Uh, I could just watch this film over and over again and um, I think just enjoy it a little bit more each time. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, yeah. Where can our listeners find you and your writing and your projects? Yeah, well, uh, currently I'm working on my second book uh, entitled Hallowed Horrors. It should have been done by now, uh, (laughs) which my uh, publisher keeps reminding me. Um, I've been a little bit behind in getting that done, but it's close to close to finishing. Um, And so that should probably be out uh, in the spring sometime. I'm on Twitter at such a dark thing, and I also have a a uh, online column that I write for Rue Morgue, also entitled Hallowed Horrors, and you can catch some of my my work there. Awesome! All right, well, thank you again for joining us, and hopefully, we will talk to you again soon in the new year. My pleasure. Thank you both.
Joining me now is a past guest and longtime friend of not only the podcast, but also the podcast host, predating the podcast, Kyle Minton. Kyle, how's it Hello. going? <laughs> Hello, hi. Yes, it is me, a long time. It's, it's been a while. Rolling with it. <laughs> yeah. Kyle, thanks so much for uh, joining me. Uh, it is unfortunate that Kayla can't be here, but Kayla is trying to pay for a wedding, and that kind of cramps her, her schedule a little bit, I guess. That'll do it. <laughs> it will. It will. Uh, but Kyle, you have uh, selected a piece of 2019 media to discuss on this year's podcast. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I chose it specifically because you and I <laughs> were involved in talking about this for hours at a time. Uh, once upon a time, uh, it is the show Mr. Robot on USA uh, television, which we covered the second season many, many moons ago. Uh, on a podcast that does not exist anywhere. So. <laughs> it, does it was not. really good. It was a really good. It's a shame that everyone can't hear it because it's a you know just phenomenal. <laughs> Truly, I mean they're missing out. Yeah, yeah. So the fourth season closed out uh, that television show that everyone forgot about after the first season. It made this huge splash, I think, on the basis of its timing. Like it wasn't. I think it came out not too long after the Sony hack. Um, and after obviously a lot of anonymous activity, the hacker, the actual hacker group anonymous, um, which this show kind of curbs from quite a bit. And so when it debuted, it was like half David Fincher tribute, uh, for a lot of reasons. And then also half cyber thriller. And I think the part that has made it stick with me for so long beyond just, you know, I'm not a big consumer of television. Uh, so this is kind of the only show that I would check in for, not because I thought it was great, just because I was attached to the characters. And I think a large part of that is that kind of ounce of, um, this is kind of one of the rare shows before it became popular to have like an anti-capitalist rhetoric in it, which is, I think the thing that stuck with me over time or, or when I reflect on like when it, when it started, it really differentiates it as a piece of media. Cause although it was taking place on USA today and there were a bunch of mainstream publications talking about it. Obviously, it was a huge production. You know, it still had, um, uh, I believe, Egyptian-American, um, Rami Malek, uh, talking about taking out the 1%, which, you know, at the time was more rare than it is now in media. I feel like talking about anti-establishment or anti-corporation um, is a very easy thing to do in your media now because everyone is very tired of it. But at the time, it was kind of happening at the precipice of you know, it was before 2015. I think it, it, the show takes place in 2015. So eventually we just passed it in time. And I don't know. I mean, I think that we've, you know, when we've talked about it, Tyler, you're, you exited it because it just became like a twist narrative. It was twist after twist after twist. Um, and that's exhausting for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people left it on the basis of that. And surprise, Tyler, I'm happy to inform you. It ends on a twist. <laughs> Um, I mean, uh, Mr. Robot is one of those shows where it wasn't so much I actively exited it, but I just kind of like in the time between two seasons, I guess it, I it lost steam enough in my brain and was not like actively available enough where I just kind of like fell off and did not finish it. Uh, right. And one of those things like I always mean to go meant to go back and like catch up and just because I didn't prioritize it, it kind of fell off and I might kick myself for that. Yeah. 
Right. It would not be like the first time in the last week, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, and I feel like you hear every every time there's a television show that is either acclaimed or like misses out on its first season, like The Leftovers, you get like, oh, well, you got to start with season two. Like, that's when it really gets good. And like, I don't think that Mr. Robot has that. Like, I think if okay, for people who have not watched it, I guess I should say that Mr. Robot is about an anarchist hacker um, who suffers from mental illness. Um, and the show tries to blend uh, the surrealist elements of his episodes with um, his activities as a hacker, which I guess is the simplest way of putting it without spoiling anything. But also, I think the whole thing relies on uh, Sam Esmail's uh, show running, which is pretty much just the greatest, not the greatest in terms of like skill, but like <laughs> in quantity. He's pretty much a cover band uh, as, a, as a director, just like playing his favorite Kubrickian hits um, or uh, Fincher hits. Which I think, you know, lost a lot of people along the way because his surrealism is very popular in television now. Like you enjoyed Atlanta, right? Like that was you have you you ever get that? Yeah. Like, you know, Atlanta was good. Like the first season of Legion was good. There were a lot of television shows that play with surrealism and do it well and do it with intent. Um, Mm -hmm. Mr. Robot kind of lost that in season two. And but I think the reason that I want to pick it for season four is because ultimately it is still one of the few television shows that you know, at the time, uh, severe mental illness was not a thing that you could sell a show on. Um, I think now every other week, I feel that there is some piece of narrative (laughs) about like, you know, here is, uh, you know, here is my story here. Here is this very specific mental illness story, which is great. Like I, I'm not combating that, but I think at the time it was a lot more rare, particularly because it was so on its face. So obvious with what it was doing. Esmail is a very corny director, so he has no, he has very little subtlety in anything that he does. So, you know, early on, the main character, Elliot, is just sobbing um, from depression and has addiction. And I guess I should say that uh, if you're someone who is, uh, you know, sensitive to issues of like assault or drug addiction or really anything that you could be upset by, honestly, um, the show is rife with it because these characters are very damaged. And, you know, I think there are people who rightfully feel that those uh, issues were wielded like a bludgeon by Esmail. So I'm not approving that, but I do think that as a character, it was really nice to see someone who a was coming from a leftist stance on a major television show. It was nice to see, even if it was flippant, it was nice to see. Um, And also like was very candid, at least the viewer uh, about, you know, the paralysis provided by like severe mental illness. And I think that was, that was strong and continued to be strong throughout the show, but it faltered for a lot of reasons. I, wh- what was your first impression like of the first season, at least, I guess. I guess some, like um, many of the things you're saying, I would agree with. I don't know that I uh, appreciated as much at the time, just because I don't think I knew as much at the time, how much, the exact points of him kind of remixing the hits of some of his favorites or like his lack of subtlety necessarily. But I think that is also kind of what I enjoyed the fact that I like, and even to this day, I still enjoy entertainment. That's just kind of willing to go for it and be weird. And um, I guess it's like this, like there's this balance between just trying to be edgy and actually executing something that is weird and ambitious. And that is kind of what I felt at the time. Like I, I had not seen as much stuff uh, that, that was like this show or if I had it, it was in movies. And so it was pretty thrilling to watch. And 
elicited like genuine reactions from me in ways that I did feel like I felt were very much earned. Um, I was along, it was a, it was a thrill ride and I was along with it on in every step basically. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I, at the time definitely felt the same way. It's only like I've revisited the show a lot, which I think speaks to how much I like it. And obviously if you like something a lot that, you know, you kind of want to tear it apart because you can imagine it being much better. And I think it, the show ends, um, you know, taking that, like, you know, we have to restructure the world in a way that's fair and kind of forgets it and instead just focuses on the, you know, the trauma of its characters. And I'm not saying like, you know, obviously uh, issue based media is not popular with a lot of folks and there's a lot more compelling to have, you know, character development. (laughs) I'm not contesting that. Uh, But I will say that, like, I I think that it's unfortunate that a show that began about, you know, uh, crippling and damaging mental illness never brought up the fact of like, you know, or never really faced the fact of the damage that you do to others. um, You know, your mental illness cannot justify that. Uh, You you know, you have to stay in treatment. You you have to seek help and if you can and 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 have a support network. And and the show never really talks about that and never really discusses that and definitely never talks about the structural issues of why people who have mental illness don't have access to those resources. And it was all kind of right there. That's the thing is like when you talk about the 1%, like Sam Ismail does, but you don't also bring up that the 1%, you know, existing uh, prevents social development and social structures that should be in place to help people like the main character, Elliot, you kind of lose sight of what that character is wanting in the first place. Um, so I think I chose this just because it was kind of a massive disappointment. Um, and it made me go back and revisit the first season and think like, you know, I still love this as like a little time capsule when the world just got tremendously, tremendously weird. Um, and very heartbreaking in a lot of ways more than you know it had been previously or at least was more obvious and this was a show that was reckoning with that you know vice has a pretty good article um about mr robot being the definitive show of the 2010s and and can i can i be corny and read a prepared quote can i absolutely present so there there is a when i think about the show and i think about what i would want from a show like this in the future or any piece of media like this in the future. Um, there's, uh, he has, he has passed away or rather he, he died and it, a writer by the name of Mark Fisher, otherwise known as K punk, um, who wrote a lot about media and capitalism had this to say about depression. Um, writing about one's own depression is difficult. Depression is partly constituted by a sneering inner voice, which accuses you of self-indulgence. You aren't depressed. You aren't feeling sorry for yourself. Pull yourself together. And this voice is liable to be triggered by going public about the condition. Of course, this voice isn't an inner voice at all. It is an internalized expression of actual social forces, some of which have a vested interest in denying any connection between depression and politics. And this show failed to link, you know, the critical mental illness that, that drives the narrative to the societal forces that he's warring with. And it was just like, what a, you know, what a missed opportunity. So, but on the other hand, we were discussing parasite a little bit before, and I won't drag out this podcast anymore, but I think actually that is a decent movie about how, uh, clearly the 1% prevents, uh, needed social services for the folks who uh, really require it. So, you know, there's stuff out there, but this made me think a lot about that. So, uh, yeah, that is my choice for 2019. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I guess a uh, flight aside, but it's kind of 
it's kind of fascinating how it sounds like the in the like um throughout the entire scope of the show it was to use like the very obvious phrase ahead of its time in some ways involving uh you know addressing like the one percent and data hacks and everything but also never quite caught up with the current era in terms of how i think media has changed in how it deals with specifically like mental illness and the stories we have that kind of address with more nuance, I guess um, the, the forces that impact it, create it, like make it more debilitating. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think addressing systemic culture or uh, systemic structures of oppression, including the ones that we don't actively think about as oppressive, such as the healthcare industry, is really hard. Um, and I, I still think that creating, uh, you know, narratives about social issues is really messy. And, you know, Sorry to Bother You was not everyone's favorite movie. I really appreciated that movie. I liked it. It's also, you know, a messy narrative. And and so I think that, that making that systemic structure your central target, you end up losing some of the character development or you can lose some of the character development. So I I understand wanting to lean on the side of, well, I'm making a compelling cinematic experience. I don't think that Mr. Robot is that. I think it's very fun. And I would highly recommend it if um, you like the first few episodes at all, if you can deal with like, it is, again, very corny, um, but I enjoy it a lot. So, you know, it's just, it's a complicated ride and definitely made me reflect a lot about what I'm wanting from narratives that are about, you know, capitalism or about technology. It's, you know, I will say I would 100% watch all of Mr. Robot five times over before I would ever watch an episode of Black Mirror for what it's worth. So if you hate Black Mirror, may I recommend Mr. Robot? (laughs) Fantastic. And Mr. Robot, the first three seasons are streaming on Amazon Prime, which I mean... (laughs) You know, yeah, that yeah, that's the also yeah, the constant thing of like yeah, stream this um, anti-large corporation show, which always pokes fun at them on Amazon, like the largest corporation of all of them. Like it would be kind of ironic on any streaming service, but especially on yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we can stop, but I just want to say that like you know, they released a phone text adventure, and I think they had like a, a uh, Alexa integration at one point. Oh. Like, tell me about the five nine hack was uh, an ad that happened a lot and i was like come on like <laughs> that is yeah fascinating but ridiculous thank you so much for uh joining me kyle um i'll include uh if you could send me the links i will include those that you've referenced in the actual show notes will do and we'll talk to you again in the new year excellent see you Sitting with us now is a a good friend and musician, Jordan McNaughton.
Jordan, thank you for joining us. Hi, what's up? Thank you for having me. Uh, really excited to be here. So, Jordan, uh, in this here, our year in review series, everyone picks a 2019 movie to discuss. What is the movie you've chosen, and can you tell us why you picked it? Today, I have brought to the table my favorite movie of 2019, Her Smell, written and directed by Alex Ross Perry. I picked it because, again, it was my favorite movie of last year, and it just has stuck with me more than anything else the 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 music the writing especially and i'm it i watched it again last night today and another week ago it's it's a long movie (laughs) and i watch movies at night so i fall asleep sometimes but it i i'm in tears every time by the end it's it's a powerful movie i'm happy to talk about it Yeah, I, I watched this very late last night as well. And I it's like one of those that's been on my watch list ever since it came out mm-hmm. in March. And I just hadn't made time for it. So thank you for doing that. And uh, I don't know what I expected, but it certainly upended my expectations. Even just the it's got a very specific structure yes. that lent itself to a lot of a uh, lot of anxiety. <laughs> Would you say it's on par with Gems? Is it gems level anxiety for you? Honestly, I think I might have found it that like more consistently anxious, like anxiety inducing than gems, like more of a good on good time levels. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like bad things actually happen in this movie and you think bad things are going to happen in Uncut Gems and they don't, you know, for the most part. So uh, can you tell us a bit? So like this, obviously, uh, some of these movies, uh, a lot of people have seen or like we get we feel pretty safe going with the assumption. Like Mm -hmm. if you're listening to a segment about Parasite, yeah, a lot of people have seen Parasite. You've probably seen it. Her Smell (laughs) is like a very small movie that it's been available like it's on HBO right now. But like a lot of people on HBO, it's on Canopy. Uh, canopy i wish i had access to canopy i cry every day (laughs) but uh so can you tell us like like what the basic uh structure of her smell is like what and why like what works about it yeah so her smell um i I might want to even dive into the plot just real quick before i send it up it's based it's set in the 90s it follows becky something who led a band uh something she uh, and it's takes place in a lot of green rooms for the most part uh and it's structured like a play it's in five acts very distinct um gets a lot of comparisons to uh steve jobs the danny boyle movie from i think 2015 oh i can tell um and i I watched those back to back actually the first time i saw either of those movies so it was kind of it was very neat to do that but i think the reason that it's so compelling for this story specifically is instead of everything like time flowing through, like it would be in a normal movie that spans several years, the each act is so distinctive. He changes color palettes um, and this each serve a very specific purpose in telling the story where if it just kind of blended together and there were jumps through time um, instead of these hard act breaks, I don't think it would have worked as well. Yeah, I, I, uh, especially uh, this. I mean, this is not totally related, but I watched it the same day as The Irishman and just the structure. Okay. Both take place in like, you know, five different time periods, but both are handled very mm-hmm. differently. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, uh, Her Smell, it has these five specific acts. They are like very specifically set off by like a um, backstage video of yes. uh, 
the of uh, Becky something or like of the band. Like, well, it's always of her, but like of the band with family providing context. Yes, they're very I feel like they're very um, crucial to the whole movie because they they set up everything you didn't see about the band before. You, you see all their relationships and their dynamics and I like that it progresses through the movie. It goes from the the Becky you hear about, the Becky that pulled all of these people you see in the movie in, and the all those people that she hurts. But you see why they're with her in the first place, and it takes you through by the last one, uh, before the uh, at five, you can see in her eyes. It's like that. It's the it's the monstrous version of Becky at that point. Uh, and I, that I really like that. <laughs> and I guess this is like. I, spoilery in that if you don't know anything this will kind of give away but like it's they, let me know if you think uh differently because again i have seen this once and it was very late but like it's kind of like the story it's the story it's uh well fall and rise basically it's yeah we, like it, it is uh it is like the last show for this renowned punk band that's kind of like fallen on hard times in part because mm-hmm. their leader is really spiraling and for uh, for the first part, the very anxious part I was talking about, mm-hmm. uh, we see like we it's almost like in the distinct acts, it's like real time. Mm-hmm. The that night as it spirals downward and just things get worse and worse and eventually like the crash <laughs> and burn before we. Um, yeah, well, I I, th- I think we could talk about it in loose terms without spoiling it, I guess, because it, I, I feel like right. I feel like the arc of it isn't revolutionary i think i i think it excels a lot because of moss's performance in the writing but a lot of movies don't take the time i think to really sit in what happens after everything goes to shit like once you hit rock bottom how do you move on as a person you're still alive you're still a person you still have to be accountable you still have to (laughs) like make yourself food make your daughter food like most movies just kind of gloss over instead of sitting with it and i i appreciated that this one really it's really felt so I sadly, despite this being so on brand for me, have not seen this movie. <laughs> I have oh, no. Unfor- I have seen Vox Lux, and I'm curious how these two compare. If you've seen both of them, because Ooh, I have not. Ah, uh, because Vox Lux is very similar, where it has this kind of like meteoric rise, and then like having to deal with the aftermath of like what that celebrity does to somebody who still okay. has to be a person and take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the dichotomy between like punk stars and pop stars is very different, but I would be super interested to explore that yeah. at some point. I'm, I'm much, I'm 10 times more interested in watching that movie now, uh, hearing you draw those comparisons. Uh, my very strange story of watching that movie is I watched it on a plane back from England <laughs> after <laughs> watching Detective Pikachu. <laughs> so it's a very Kayla St. Hunch double feature. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I kind of thought it ruled. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so, I, I can get yeah. down. I, it seems to me that there's a lot of parallels. So, yeah. And uh, uh, like most of pe- uh, most people's big takeaway is Moss's performance, which is very fair. And I don't think it's even taking away from uh, the the rest of the movie because that's just kind of how it's structured. But like Moss has to, Becky is just this whirlwind of a per- person. Like she, I one of my notes was just like, how do you even react to someone like her? Like how do you <laughs> be in the same room? She's otherworldly and just a, 
if someone is going to play that character, I feel like the way it's written, like it's it's going to be an incredible performance, I guess. It's got to be or else it, the movie doesn't work. Right, because the it it needs to feel like the same character in each act mm-hmm. and there are events like we talk I, we kind of talk about like how there's a downfall mm-hmm. and it deals and like at a certain point the like she has to deal she actually has to deal with the ramifications mm-hmm. of her actions and she's going through a lot and like you know in what like might be a traditional character arc but she is just such a specific like it's a horror movie for the first like three acts it is she's like a demon right (laughs) like like it's like like i it could go into green room territory at any point (laughs) and what i like is that or what i found very impressive is that even like once there's a hard shift use it is still very clearly becky something she's in a much different state and like her person like even yeah As she deals with like the ramifications of her actions and she's in a much different setting and space, it is still very clearly her. She's still like, uh, like super into like dreams, like using dreams to like predict her reality and like holding seances to kind of center herself. Like, and and everyone still supports that, which is cool. (laughs) It's really just like trying to find a way to like still be a person in the world but like she's like she's still herself and yeah, I, she's still a weirdo <laughs> like she's got the, she still has she's got, she still has the same things that make her becky but without uh you know the the issues or you know or the substance it's i like that it's still there not that she's just like i'm different now <laughs> like that's it doesn't go away it's like an aspirational story about how you can still be <laughs> you can be a weirdo responsibly <laughs> That's, yeah, I like that. Yeah. You don't like have to message. hurt the people around you. Um, can is it is it a spoiler or can anyone explain to me why the film is in fact titled Her Smell? You know what? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I know. I've just been wondering about this since I saw the trailers and since it was announced. So I, I gotta tell you, my, my, it's a mystery. I mean, maybe only Alex maybe. Perry my, knows. My guess is my big takeaway is that Be- Becky is just. The way we meet her, she, you can't understand like why anyone would still be around this this person. But there's so, there's something inherent to her. She has something that these people that are in her life can't get anywhere else. Like she's still got something special, and I think that's the kind of her smell thing. Like mm-hmm. kind of just a not alluding to that. I don't know. I, I, gotcha. That makes sense to me. <laughs> I have quickly Googled an explanation from Alex Ross Perry. If you'd like me to read okay. it off. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I love, I want to be wrong. I want to be so wrong. <laughs> no, I, th- I think you're on the right path. Um, okay. So as for the film's unusual title, Perry explains that her smell is derivative of the punk rock albums that female bands like L7 put out quote, two of L7's records are smell the magic and hungry for stink said mm-hmm. Perry or end quote said Perry. I needed a, I needed a title that exists in the continuum of gnarly women in rock making albums with gross and awesome names. They are feminizing the sense of filth, feminizing something that's meant to be kind of raw and not appealing and making it their own and saying we can do as much as any man can. That was just appealing. To okay. Me. I dig that. I, I like dig it. that. I also feel like that jives with what Jordan said. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah it's, I love it. Because uh, she is like scuzzy. She's a scuzzy, disgusting rock star. Yeah. It's 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 quite the movie. You love to see yeah. it. 
and it's beautiful to watch. It's so captivating to watch. You love to see. What did you think of the music, Tyler? I know we're kind of coming to the end of the segment, so I want to barrel through some of the big stuff to try to get some people interested in seeing it. Uh, there's music. They let it, music play out, like in uh, Inside Lewin Davis or what's another? Josie and the Pussycats. They let full songs play out in a movie. I love that. Yes, and it's very fun for me, for someone who likes to cut music from the movies in between our segments. But it's, uh, I mean, when you have, when you're making a movie like this, it almost feels like a missed opportunity not to actually have the, like, original songs in the movie. Um, And I think it's really well executed. Uh, Like, there are some, and there are many different opportunities for different kinds Mm -hmm. of song. I think they make good use of it i think i haven't like had much time to re-listen back to it but like in the moment i thought they are pretty rad songs that i'm like i would like to know who wrote these because these are pretty cool they see appropriate they feel appropriate yeah uh the front woman of bully do you know the band bully yes Yes. oh my god yeah she wrote the songs for for something she and maybe that makes a lot of sense yeah and and but moss learned to play them in everything guitar lessons and sings beautifully so I think it's very authentic and yeah, they, they kick ass those songs. So that's true. We haven't talked about like talking to a uh, musician. We haven't talked about the actual music part of it. And like, I'm imagining you have not played shows quite like this in terms of no. uh, <laughs> the chaos, but uh, I, like we all have been involved in the music scene to some yeah. extent in our and, lives. And uh, I think this it, it seems appropriately toxic. <laughs> like I, I, we've all the music industry, not, not great. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think they capture, there's an authenticity. I, I will say the one, one thing, one negative thing I have with the movie is at, at the end, there's like a big, like real concert kind of thing, live performance. And I don't, I don't think that's uh, his strong shoot in capturing. There's a lot of intimate performances. There's uh one of the acts takes place my two favorite acts actually take place in a studio while they're working on an album and uh another one where she's just mostly at home and plays a song uh for one of her former bandmates and both of those performances are just um they're they're beautifully executed uh in the in the latter one I'm, i'm trying to talk around any potential spoilers but the way he he composes the shot both characters are facing the camera because Becky is facing, she's got her back to her friend while playing the song because she can't, like, couldn't do it if she was looking at her, I think. Like, I, I really resonated with that. Just, like, she's being so vulnerable in a, a sober way, which uh, can be hard, I think. Yeah, and we, we and we haven't even gotten to, like, the inner person, like, the, her relationships with all these characters, like, the relationship between well, the characters. Dan Stevens is in this movie. Oh, that should... <laughs> That 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 should be brought in. That's got at least one person will watch this movie because of that. I hope Dan, Dan Stevens as just like this uh, former scuzzy whoa, punk who whoa, like. Whoa, 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 whoa! How did I never hear about this at any point I, in the entire like? I, I know, I should, maybe I, the movie's actually good, so that's why I don't lead with it. But no, yeah, I know, Dan, but I'm like, wow. Dan Stevens <laughs> is in it as like a reformed punk who's now like a responsible dad of a child who's like you have to pay attention to your child yeah not that i like truly need any other reason because again this is a very Mm -hmm. on-brand movie for me it's actually embarrassing that i haven't seen it so but that's a a bonus i guess Uh, have have either of you seen any uh other alex ross perry movies prior to this i've only seen one other one i haven't yes i've listened to him be on blank Uh, check a lot uh, (laughs) same same. uh, elizabeth moss and um Um, catherine Waterston world we love um, whatever it's called 
people oh. we love people something people they're in a pool on the cover i know what you're talking about yeah, oh i watched uh, it and, and i really i thought it was really impressive i really liked it i do need to see it again yeah. not golden exits i need to i missed that okay. um, queen of earth queen, queen of earth, earth. Yeah, yeah that's saw, uh, definitely all of those things i just said recommend yes. okay good good, <laughs> good. I, I watched the one before that listen up philip with uh jason Schwartzman and elizabeth moss and he's like a writer and that one seen good movie good movie he's the literary world seems to have a lot of parallels to the music world i think and hearing him on blank check like he is just he's a very prickly guy i think yeah i didn't like him at first like it took a couple of episodes for me to like get it he's abrasive (laughs) and he seems like someone who would understand that yeah (laughs) which but like once i i felt like once i heard him on a on a couple of episodes i i got it like i understood like that it was he's just like a very like very un like unfiltered person (laughs) he's unfiltered and he's kind of i feel like he walks the line that a lot of real people and also like fictional characters get wrong where like you can you cannot conform to societal like (laughs) behavior standards Mm -hmm. like like he's very direct and yeah. is speaking in that like but i think he does it in he's particular he's particular i think he does it in a responsible enough way where he's not just like running his mouth all the time being a jerk yeah but uh we should uh wrap this up uh but jordan <laughs> uh what like so um we kind of it's been a little scattershot but we tried to hit some of the main points uh are there any like final thoughts you have that you want to get out about her smell like your favorite movie of the year oh man my favorite movie of the year that we haven't talked about is I I think it's a movie for people who like uh, details. I think it's a movie for people who uh, love to watch assholes, <laughs> uh, which I definitely feel like I, uh, I I'm allured to that. We said Dan Stevens in here. I can't remember a lot of the names of the supporting cast, but like they all they they bring it. Every everyone is 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 giving it giving it their all. Yeah, absolutely. The supporting cast, like, is obviously there's a whirlwind at the middle, but the supporting cast around her, that whirlwind is pretty vital to yeah the reality, the verisimilitude. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, uh, Jordan, thank you so much uh, you. for finally getting me to watch her smile for one <laughs> for joining us. Uh, where can our listeners find you and or any of your work? Yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter. It's Dog Shirt Without the I. Uh, that's my the name of my music project. I've got an album coming out at the end of January. It's called Married Now. I'd love it if you take a listen. A little bit of inspired by this movie. I think it was done by the album. And you know what? It's not, but the next one is. Next one will definitely have some her smell <laughs> in it. Uh, and yeah, um, got a letterbox. You can probably I've linked that on Twitter. And uh, yeah, small.bandcamp.com. That's where you can find my music. Thank you so much for having me on, uh, both of you. Yeah, hopefully we'll talk to you in the new year soon.
And sitting with us now is uh, writer, director, Stephen Cognetti. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for inviting me back, guys. It's always a pleasure. And for this our year in review series. Everyone picks a 2019 piece of media, usually a movie, but not always. Can you tell us what your pick was and why you chose it? Uh, my pick was The Irishman. And uh, kind of sounds weird the way I say it. The, the Irishman. <laughs> the Irishman. <laughs> Anyways, The Irishman. Um, I picked uh, because uh, as a father of two, I don't get to the theater much. So there's not much I've seen unless it's easily stream streamable on my uh on uh, on my console and irishman was and i was really excited to watch when it came out and uh of of the movies um you know of the movies we could have talked about to 2019 i actually have a uh i love the irishman for its history because i'm i'm kind of like a, a history buff like when it comes to these like uh, events that happen, uh, but also has a Scranton connection. I'm a Scranton native, uh, it, where uh, Buffalino was from the uh, Scranton area. And in the beginning of the film, they they, they passed by, by the Scranton area too. And then um, Jimmy Hoffa was supposedly supposed to be buried in a giant stadium. I'm a huge New York Giants fan. I remember as a kid going to the stadium thinking, is he really buried in, in the end zone of the stadium? And so and there's just so much fun things like and then finding out the history of it. I just loved it. And I just, I was excited to talk about it. So that's why I picked it. Excellent, because I, I definitely fall into the, uh, the there's a line uh, spoken by the, so this movie takes place in multiple timelines. Mm -hmm. Kayla has not I seen it. I haven't seen it, but I, I know um, of it. I know enough about it. Uh, <laughs> and there's a point early in the movie where old Robert De Niro says, the kids these days, they don't know anything about Jimmy Hoffa. He was like a superstar or whatever. I was like, yeah, that's me. I don't know anything about Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> Right. Uh, my, I am lacking in history there, but the movie clearly like ties itself to history in many ways. And so, right. I mean, if it was a, if it was in part a PSA by uh, Martin Scorsese to raise the awareness of our un his union history, uh, right. I mean, it worked on me. I'm now very curious. <laughs> right. And, and, and that's the thing. It, there's such a rich history there and it ties into so many other um, histories like, one thing, I, the, the biggest revelation to me from that movie is, and I knew about Jimmy Hoffa, and uh, I, I, I guess maybe that's like an age thing. I, 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 I guess I'm older than you guys, right? Yeah, I think I, so. I'm 38. Yeah, so. okay, I'm 27. So, <laughs> okay. yeah, so I, it's not a big enough difference, but like, I, I, I don't know why I would have known about uh, Jimmy Hoffa, but uh, I did, and uh, just his disappearance. And think disappearances to me are like unsolved mysteries are always uh, of interest to me. And especially when someone was seen one day, next day never found again. That happened was uh, 30, 40 years ago. But um, uh, Jimmy Hoffa, the biggest thing, revelation in the movie gave me that I didn't know, and it ties into another Scorsese, Scorsese film, was uh, that uh, Jimmy Hoffa was the, uh, you know, the, the head of the Teamsters Union. The Teamsters Union sat on this gigantic pension fund, this big pot of money that, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of like, in, in that sense, it made him like a bank because he had control over that fund and what the money was going to be used for. And when the mobsters wanted to build uh, Las Vegas, they couldn't go to a bank and get a loan. They went to Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa was lending the money to build Vegas from the Teamsters pension fund. And that's how Las Vegas got got uh, got built. And that's how uh, Jimmy Hoffa's connection to the mob was and I, I always knew like he he died because of there was some kind of mob connections there and the teamsters always had mob connections back in those days back in the 50s 60s uh, i never known what that connection was and it all comes from the pension fund and the money and that, that was a revelation to me that i didn't know that is so crazy 
Yeah, yeah. It's he. I. I mean, I even double checked myself, and I, he actually disappeared in Bloomingfield, Michigan. If Wikipedia is to believe, no, that's why I've heard that. I knew. I was like, I've heard of Jimmy Hoffa, and I thought maybe I was thinking of the wrong thing because I was like, didn't this guy disappear in, in Michigan? Where's this true crime podcast? No, but it is a thing. Like it comes up on just like local news around Michigan. That's why I've heard of it. Every like okay. five or so years, they're like, guys, we definitely know where Jimmy Hoffa is, and then it's obviously not where Jimmy Hoffa is. But well, you were never killed because he was last seen at a hotel outside a hotel in uh in michigan and um and then so no one knows what happened to him after so that's where that's where mm-hmm. the last time you've seen no one knows what happened was he killed there was he taken somewhere else and the story had always been um ever since i was a little kid growing up that jimmy hoffa is buried in the um, in the end zone of giant stadium because he was murdered around the time they were breaking ground for the stadium uh and and and, and at that time jersey new york was such like so rich with um, uh, uh, mobster activity, and everyone knows those uh, the, the Meadowlands out there outside of uh, outside of New York City, uh, right into Jersey, is a place where there's a, a lot of bodies buried by the mob. So you know, so so they say, and they even do they talk a little bit of that in The Godfather, where you see they're driving outside the city into those those tall grass areas. Um, that's the Meadowlands where Giant Stadium is, and so I guess somehow the rumor got started. So it was always just like uh, an urban legend. And, in the wives' tale that no one really knew uh, if that was true or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they they blew up Giant Stadium to build a new stadium next to it, and they demolished the old one, uh, I'm pretty sure that I, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure they they did look in the in the end zones for a while. <laughs> I mean, you I gotta was check. Just ask if anybody you gotta checked. Check. <laughs> yeah, but they never did. They never did. Like like those rumors are so. I, the rumors are so prevalent about him being buried in the stadium because I think it was because of some monster died and like said that like oh by the way you know Hoff was buried in Giant Stadium in like the, the north end zone uh, something like I don't know which one it was but um, but that was, it always, it came from someone and so it, it, the rumor just grew from there but they never actually checked like no one ever like I don't because I don't think it was, it was credible but it was just because it was just an urban legend credible enough to, for for the authorities to go dig in Giant Stadium Amazing. but they definitely did check. Uh, and he wasn't there, and so it's still to this day, it just always remains mystery what happened. It, it's it's shocking that 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 has not 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 been solved yet. And so what Scorsese did is just going up on a, is following up on one theory uh, from one witness and telling that story. Yeah, so- I'm reading that. So the the movie follows um, follows Frank Sheeran, who's yeah, like. Played by Niro, yeah. Right, and he's who's one of the last, who was one of the last surviving people from this time, which you know kind of mm-hmm. gets into like the the theme and the overarching thesis is maybe too strong of the movie, but uh, apparently he claimed before, shortly before he died to have killed Jimmy Hoffa, which was based yeah. on a book, and that's how this movie came about. Which I don't know. It's, the book is called "I Heard You Paint Houses," and that, that's code for "I Heard You Kill People." And uh, and that that's the that's the book that was written about about this French uh, this guy um, what's his name Sheeran um, and it's called I Heard You Paint Houses and that was code in the mob I guess that means if you shoot someone in the back of the head their blood goes all over the walls you paint houses I guess that's the the innuendo there yeah, that's, the, that's what it was called um, so uh, he was a he was a uh, a hitman in, in the mob uh, and he just got. You know, he's not, he's not, obviously he's the Irishman. He's not Italian. He's not Sicilian. He's not, uh, he's not, he's not part of the mob, but he works, he works with them very closely. Well, the movie's full of a bunch of that um, lingo, which is never like explicitly explained because like, why would it be in the 
context, but I found that all fascinating. It took me probably a little longer than it should have to realize that I paint houses does not actually mean he paints houses. If you want to approach what I, what I, what I'm pretty sure they never explicitly explain this, but I'm pretty sure just generally speaking, my knowledge of, of the underworld, which comes from Hollywood. So that's, you know, but uh, if you were to approach a hitman, you would say, I heard you paint houses and you would say, I do. And that's how the conversation goes. So you're never actually saying, I heard you kill people, you know, like it's, it's, it's slang that way. Just in case of wired, <laughs> I guess. So a question from me is like, how, what, how was the experience of watching this movie having kind of that like local and personal connection to the source material? Uh, you know, I, I thought it would, it, it doesn't really add anything to it. It just got me, me uh, wanting to learn more about uh, the crime families and, and some that were locally. So like after watching it, I did some Googling to find out like who was actually from here. Is it true? And it is true. And there, you know, some of the local papers around Scranton that, you know, did stories on it. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously Scranton's not, doesn't have a, uh, a big uh, mob history though, but the, one of the, the bigger, uh, crime bosses did live in the area for a while during this, during this whole story took place. And I, you know, I, I just found the, I, I just found it such an interesting, uh, way to tell the story of a retiring old mobster just spilling his beans, telling his old, telling his story. And it's, it starts with him in a retirement home at, at the end of everything. And he's old and he just starts talking and telling a story that goes flashes back to when he was really young. And that's, and that's what they did. They used the de-aging technology to make a young Robert De Niro instead of flashing back and having a different actor play a young Robert De Niro. Which is so cool. And it actually looked great. I think that that's a really interesting technology. And I I was listening actually to a podcast this morning that was kind of on the fence about it. Cause they're like, you know, we have this established convention where a different actor plays them when they're younger. Like, do we really need to go through all of this? But I'm also kind of like, I think that that's a great tool to have because it means that like, for the most part, you as an actor can keep working and keep taking roles that like maybe aren't a hundred percent in your age range anymore. And like when I was thinking about it, like obviously this movie is not an example of this at all because I have yet to hear if there even is a woman in this movie, but like thinking about how like women right. are aged out of Hollywood so quickly, how this kind of technology could yeah. maybe be very beneficial. Like we should probably just be less sexist to women in Hollywood, but like if it helps, like right. why yeah. not use it? Yeah. <laughs> Until we figure that out. Yeah, we technology to take care of our sexism. Yeah. Right? Until we solve the problem of sexism, <laughs> it could be very helpful. Yeah. So the way I feel about the de-aging technology is not more of a, uh, getting more work. I think it, it, it expands creativity because I kind of feel like there is – there. People are probably more hesitant uh, in, when, uh, in filmmaking to tell a story that expands on generations or time just because they don't maybe like the idea of bringing in younger actors to play the older mm-hmm. actors going back and forth. When you can have one actor play that same role from uh, start to beginning that might actually, it, uh, for future storytelling, uh, might, might uh, tell better mm-hmm. stories when you know that you can keep that one actor and you can expand on the flashbacks of, uh, of a history of one character when you know that you don't have to cast a, a completely separate actor for it. That would be my guess, just from a creative standpoint, using that technology. And I think uh, the reason why they did it in this, instead of using a young actor, because I think they relied on a younger De Niro for like half the film instead of like just doing quick flashbacks, like five or 10 minutes here, where if it were just a little bit of the film, yeah, maybe you can get away with using like a younger actor. But when you rely so heavily on all of these characters 
being younger for so much of the film, uh, and then I think you can't rely on half the film being completely someone else and then the other half being the, the older. Uh, so I, I think uh, so. I think they definitely went the right direction in using that technology. And it actually it looked good. It didn't well, and especially with, like, with an actor like Robert De Niro, who has such a certain gravitas to him that like, I don't know that there are very many people who could step into his shoes and be like, I know how to emulate this. I know how to talk like this. I know how to act like this. It, it made more sense to me after I saw the movie. Not that it didn't make sense before, but uh, because there are, it's not just that there's an old De Niro and a young De Niro. There are like four or five different time periods, I think. I like, But we, we see him at several different ages. And so I think, like, I, I guess I see when it gets to that point, when it's like young and then like kind of middle age and then different, like different areas of old then it's like when do you stop using de niro and start using someone else do you use a different person for each time period and i think that made me more sympathetic to the use of this technology when it was like these many stages and not just young and old um it's not as simple as like i don't like uh yeah. samuel jackson the agent captain marvel that's just like one that's just just young samuel just doing jackson. a different thing right. yeah although i will say the thing that is that is iffy about that is that it is the reason that it ended up being a Netflix movie instead of a Paramount movie is because it ended up driving the cost of the budget up so much. They were like, yo, you just had this huge bomb. Like, no, we're not going to give you a billion more dollars on your movie. That's way over budget and overshooting schedule. So I, I do worry. Yeah. Like how available that will be to like filmmakers who aren't of Robert De Niro's caliber, or if it's something that will eventually be workshopped to a point where anyone can use it or like what the future of that looks like. What uh, what was the bomb you were referring to? Um, Silence. Silence. Thank you. So he had a movie that came out and everybody was like, oh, Scorsese, like, great, yada, yada. And it was just a dead on arrival, pretty much. Like, I, I haven't seen it. I don't, I'm sure it's not a bad I've movie. Heard, I've heard that it's a great movie. It just like both in, both like financially and in awards uh, Yeah. So like didn't categories. Win an Oscar. It just like, it didn't make an impact. Yeah. And yeah. also like Paramount, like, I mean, <laughs> the furthest thing from an industry insider, but like Paramount seems to be having plenty of issues right well, now. Paramount has tons of issues with like trying to figure out how to market properties that they've bought anyway. The same, like Paramount was the people who were supposed to distribute Annihilation too. And look what happened with that. <laughs> so a disaster. <laughs> Very confusing decisions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I guess that's, that's part of the reason why it might have bombed is I never heard silence. This. Uh, sorry, um, yeah. Silence. Yeah. An- another thing. I guess that like one of the things that uh, strikes me about this movie is I can't, I try to avoid most of the like discourse before actually seeing the movie, just because at a certain point I'd rather, I'd like to see the movie <laughs> like to actually, before I have any opinions on it, that's probably a safe, it's probably the smart thing for me to do. Uh, but yeah. uh, it's very telling that it was based on a memoir that came from like a deathbed confession from a single man, basically because it, for much of the movie, it feels like, this like hist- like this recent historical epic in a way that like kind of blew my mind about just how violent that time was and just how many people died but then uh it's told like it's told it's this big expansive story but at the be it's told from this single perspective and then especially towards the end as everyone around him starts to die and it narrows down to this one man who is now like after this life of violence and crime and like 
seemingly some level of success we see throughout that like he loses the people around him sometimes he specifically cuts them out and it becomes this very like personal story at the very end because he's just all alone after like this after we spend like three hours in this whirlwind of all these different people and all these different machinations um i just it, it made for a very and like this might just be like I haven't seen enough like of certain classic film or Scorsese, but like it was just this very, I found it very fascinating how it's like this, how it's this big expansive movie, but also feels like so intimate and personal uh, at the same time. And I think it's very impressive how he pulled that off. Uh, And I think we don't need to argue about like whether it's sympathetic or whatever. I think like after my personal opinion is after seeing the movie, it's very clearly like not, celebrating the life of frank sheeran at all right um is that the conversation around it as we not get i have not paid attention to the discourse around this either because like, i'm just like whatever it's like a wolf of wall street redux in a way uh, okay. um but yeah uh that, at least that's uh steven you can go on on that or like anything you'd like to go on about but that was just like one of my main takeaways uh, I, and I like that takeaway. And I, so I guess my, so what I wanted to ask you is um, having just heard what you said, I, I, maybe I have my answer, but did you like, did you like it? Would you say this is a movie I enjoyed and I like, I guess I would say, yeah, like I would say I enjoyed it. Um, and I think a lot of that is just Martin, like Martin Scorsese is like such a Titanic massive figure in the movie industry both in like his the success of his actual movies over the last several decades but also like people learning from his style that it almost feels like comfortable mm-hmm. watching these like a movie like this um especially like in how it's paced and how it takes its time to tell this story about all these people even though like these are like pretty objectively terrible people at least the ones at the very center of the story but yeah, I, I, I did I, I did enjoy the experience of watching it. It almost feels kind of like it felt I mean it's a biopic, so like kind of like I don't know, it feels like kind of like watching a certain like a documentary on the history channel, like yeah, akin sure. to that where you're like, you know, that kind of experience where like it's not necessarily like these aren't good things we're watching, but like you're learning, right. it's educational. Yeah, it's just I I mean it happened. I you know, so it's it's a, it's an event in history that you could talk about. It has so many connections to other events in history. I mean, I mean, they even touch on, um, on Kennedy, uh, so much too. So, I mean like that, 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 uh, it's, it's a web that uh, touched on a lot of important, uh, moments in history. So it's, it's a fascinating subject matter that I, I think should be told. And I don't think it's glorifying, uh, any, any of that life because that life does not seem glorified at all. That life seems depressing. Right. And we have like a place for movies that are punishing as a way of showing you how the time period was punishing. Like I haven't seen 1917, but I wouldn't be surprised. Like name several war movies or like some of my favorite, like very suspense, like full of dread movies. Um, I just there's also a place for telling them in a way that entertaining are is entertaining because they're movies and that's maybe a difficult needle to thread. But Martin Scorsese very good at it. Kayla, you have something. Well, to say. I just I also have a a thought that the discourse sometimes has we've we've become very online and when we look at art, I think people forget that every single thing committed to screen or to writing is not an endorsement of said thing. Life is messy and complicated and depicting it in any medium is messy and complicated. And it's kind of that same thing when people are are miffed about like antiheroes or whatnot appearing in any kind of film. And it's just like, 
this is what it is. Like, we're not saying that this is a good person that you should emulate or look up to. It just right. is a story about a difficult, strange person. <laughs> like, I don't know. I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think that since we're all like very much in tune with like horror movies that were kind of like, <laughs> I like, I get like very personally defensive about stuff like that because people are so weird about that, particularly with horror movies. But like when it crops up in biopics and stuff too, and it's like, okay, we're just, this is literally a historical event and time period that is being depicted on screen mm. it's like not i don't know it's not glorifying it <laughs> it's just like to depict it or to show it or to talk about it so i guess the short answer is yes, yes. I, yeah. I, didn't hear that. I didn't hear that backlash but i'm surprised it did come up uh and it doesn't surprise me one bit that there was that kind of uh, uh especially now with social media it's like i think anything <laughs> and apart <laughs> parts of any film are picked apart or, or uh, you know dragged through the mud for whatever reason. Everyone's got an opinion. This is a super tangent, but it does make me wonder if it's a, like kind of Netflix specific because it is available to like everyone at the same time. Like any, like and not people, like you don't have to go to the theater to pursue it. Cause like we talked about marriage story, having kind of a similar thing where yeah, I felt like it was kind of misconstrued in certain ways. And I, that happens with a lot of movies, but I, it, I don't know. It just, it feels heightened with these big Netflix releases. I would agree with that. That makes sense to me. No. Like things that are readily available are the things that people will most often see and then talk about. So. A trend I am sure there are many like professional writers monitor- monitoring <laughs> in the near future. Yeah. What did you guys think about the whole idea of it being, um, so it had, to, it had to play in a theater, right? To be able to mm-hmm. be up for a better yeah. future, right? Uh, and so I remember there wasn't there some controversy around that about uh, streaming uh, Netflix streaming movies being up for best picture and uh, even Netflix just being a player and all that. Uh, so that was a, that was a little bit there, right? Yeah. So there's definitely been conversation about that over the past couple of years. I think that like personally as somebody who really has no like professional ties to the industry, but I, I think it's a silly conversation because if a studio is willing to put up the money to finance a film and it's an interesting film, I don't really see how it matters where it came from, especially when we have a monolith like Disney owning literally 80% of the film industry landscape right now. And I don't really see, I don't think that it needs to be in theaters to be considered for Oscar stuff either. But I'm also very sentimental, and I think that there is a, a certain um, air about a theater experience for movies. So, like, I don't know. I think that overall, like, we're starting to move away from that since Netflix has kind of established itself as a real player in that regards. Because I think the first year that they had a movie that was that was nominated, it was kind of oh, this is a streaming thing you can watch in your living room. This isn't a real film. But now, since they've proven over the past couple of years that they have the money and the desire to put out these like high budget, high quality movies with anyone and everyone who's in like an acclaimed name in Hollywood. I think that they responded to that criticism and took it in stride and we're like, okay, fine. We're going to really do it then. Yeah. You and I are uh, in, uh, in complete agreement uh, on everything you're saying that it's kind of feels like this is going to be boring radio that I have to, I find I feel a way to like disagree with you somehow, but I can't, <laughs> thing it makes so much sense and i i completely agree um but uh i, I would say that there was there's so at the time you know when streaming first came out or anything there's a stigma if your film is not in a theater then it's uh you know it's not a real film and i think that we, every year where streaming services get better and uh, more uh platforms uh become bigger and quality gets better that that's not a th- remember uh, there's that we used to say oh it's a direct video mm-hmm. 
know, um, so it's like, oh, well, then it can't be that good. So, you know, like it's direct to DVD, it's a direct, you know, like that, that whole stigma of like, well, it didn't go to the theater. So that you, you could tell how bad it was. That's what used to be said. But then with the rises of Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime and Hulu, and I think that that stigma has gone away where films don't have to be theatrical to really be considered um, a, among the top of the films that do, the industry films that do go uh, there too. And I agree, a, a film is a film. <laughs> so it's like it doesn't matter where it gets shown where, where it comes from so yeah. I completely agree with that sentiment though and that's where the that's where the industry is moving so you have to evolve and adapt to that um, it's great the theater experience is great I don't think it will ever go away um, uh, at least I hope not because you know as a filmmaker you always you hope that you're going to get your, your chance to be uh, playing in, a, in theaters uh, someday too but um, so far you know I've only been the digital route so that's why I do defend digital if you can highest towards digital because my films are all digital released we haven't gone to to uh to theater so i'm kind of like you know digital is great guys <laughs> and yet still good movies so <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm with you on that on that whole controversy so uh but the thing is like the netflix um whole model i think it's great that they did this movie because they're you know when it comes to original content uh, they're spending so much money and they're losing so much of the other content that people come to Netflix for. So, you know, like the, the friends and the, mm-hmm. and the office and stuff like that, that's what people like get, you know, come to Netflix for. And, and they, and Netflix is kind of like hoping they stay for their original stuff. Uh, this is a, it seemed to, I, I don't know how much the, what the uh, ROI is on there. Cause they don't release any, any numbers though, but I, you know, I hope this did good for Netflix um, because I know they're, they're coming into trouble when it comes to content yeah. because they, you know, they're, or a platform that relies on licensing other people's stuff and the original stuff, uh, you know, they're trying to get into that game. And this was a, this was a good one for them. And they have a few original shows that are doing well too, uh, that I do enjoy as well. So, uh, you know, hopefully this is a win for Netflix. I think so. Yeah. We probably should wrap up though. Uh, Steven, do you have any like final, like, Big picture, or actually, like, doesn't have to be big any picture. final thoughts. Any yeah. final <laughs> thoughts on the Irishman that you'd like to include before we wrap up? Uh, it's just, yeah, the reason I picked it is just because it was just a fun subject for me to talk about. And one of the things that I, I thought was so interesting that they did, I, they really they pushed the theory in the film pretty heavily that the mafia killed Kennedy. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's, it's like very blatant. Like they're like, yep, foregone conclusion: the mafia has killed Kennedy. Like they, that, that was, that's what happened. It wasn't, you know, one lone gunman. It was the mafia. And that surprised me. They went down that rabbit hole. And I think that because that, I think Sheeran did do that. He did tell that story. And remember, it's always been suspected that the mob was behind it because JFK actually does have connections to the mob. And his father does. His father comes from bootlegging and that's how they made their money. And, um, there's the controversies with the election, um, that the, the help they got from the mob up in, uh, uh, I think that was uh, Illinois, instead of Illinois, and um, so that that part of it just fascinated me towards a history thing too. That this had that this story, you know, had its hands in a lot of different uh, parts of, uh, of of history. And that one was because when it comes to conspiracy theories and Kennedy stuff, like I can go down those that rabbit hole and just be fascinated the whole time. So I, I, I kind of uh, enjoyed them throwing out their their little conspiracy theory there, and then, uh, I thought that was enjoyable. I love a good conspiracy Whether theory. Whether or not. It's, I don't know, it's uh, you know, I, I love a good conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can our listeners find you and find your work? Um, you can usually find me in my house, and um, <laughs> he doesn't leave. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> no, um, I'm on Twitter, S-A-J-C-05, uh, my initials 05. And uh, I, I, I love Twitter. It's my thing. Um, and I don't, I don't really tweet much, though, but I just, I'm just like a, I'm a news and politics and entertainment horror junkie, and I just find Twitter's the best place to find it all. But uh, that's where I am. And, uh, and Hell House is, uh, you know, it's on Shutter and Amazon, uh, so we find it there. And, uh, and we'll hopefully have a lot more uh, Hell House-related stuff coming uh, in uh, 2020. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right, guys. It was, it was a blast. Thanks. Thank you.